I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. This episode is part of the silver lining theme in which I will try to explore some of the bright side of the COVID-19 crisis with some of my wisest friends. My guest today is another dear friend and an ally in the mission of spreading happiness around the world, Dr. Maria Sirwa. Maria is a positive psychologist, she's a facilitator, she's an author, and she's a speaker. And she dedicated her life to the idea of finding well-being from a scientific point of view and crafting a life and a career that is driven by health, by passion, and by success. She focuses on the human spirit, particularly in the most difficult times, and accordingly, she's an incredible speaker for the current situation we're going through and the idea of silver linings under the lockdowns of COVID-19. Maria, I cannot thank you enough for being here with me today. It's a pleasure. This is going to be the best moment of my day. Oh, okay. There's no pressure, Mo. No pressure. I'll try to live up to that expectation. <laughs> not, not an expectation, just joyfully in real conversation. I love that. We miss that so much. I think we, we miss it more in, in the current times. I mean, how are you doing with the lockdown? It's been tough. Every day I feel like I feel everything. My business, which is quite a bit speaking and teaching and training around the world, kind of fell apart immediately. And my online business took a hold, grew dramatically. And so losing one, raising another was all happening at once. Four of our young adult kids came home. So I have to feed people every day. <laughs> okay, that's a, that, that's a new job. <laughs> I thought I was done with that job. Uh-huh. And then the embarrassment of realizing the parenting skills that we sort of didn't do quite as well as we would have wanted to. We have to get to reparent them now. We're not going to tell them that you said that. I mean, if they're, no, if they're young. They, they've heard me say it. <laughs> okay. But also holding the world in my heart right now, hearing stories of tremendous loss and grief and also stories of insane courage and goodness. And in the world of the territory of resilience, which is sort of the sandbox I play in, those stories, they're always ever present. They just are lit up right now, extremely lit up. They really are. Actually, one of the things that I keep wondering is somehow my approach to those set of episodes really is all about the idea of silver lining and the fact that people somehow are still looking at things like their careers, things like their economy, things like being locked down. And, you know, there is so much focus and negativity and talk about all of those things. And somehow people are not really fully looking at the fact that most of us are still healthy. We are, you know, we're doing okay. We have more time to be with people we love and so on and so forth. And how does that feature in your work online now? So the truth of the matter is, I'm just going to go deep really fast. We love that. Yes, we are faced with an awakening opportunity to recognize what beauty really is, the fragility and the transient nature of everything. Like the flower that I just planted is not going to live forever. 
the tree that I planted 20 years ago has died and I have to cut it down. You know, we love and we revere what is mortal. And when we do that, when we stay awake, which is what this opportunity is, this COVID-19 silver lining, the big silver lining is the opportunity to stay awake and realize how precious and transient everything is. So revel, delight in it. Appreciate the fact that I've done seven loads of laundry in the last two days because <laughs> the, ch the children are home. Do you know what I mean? Like hold the beauty in the fact that things don't last forever. I think that's the great silver lining in this. And it takes courage. It takes courage to face that. It takes insight before it takes courage. I mean, how can you see it that way? How can you look at the seven loads of laundry and say, because the children are here? How can you get people to think that way? We have to build a better brain, which is part of what I know your work has been. Like we have to train our, we have to soften our gaze, look through what I call Monet eyes to appreciate what's here, like appreciate what's right here, right now. And then train our brain to keep going there, to keep looking for the good within ourselves and around. I mean, it, I know it sounds kind of philosophical, but it's so practicable just to actually wake up in the day and say, what good can I pay attention to today? And is there always good? The way I always talk about this is I basically say, if your brain tells you half of the glass is empty, ask maybe there is another half that is full, right? And until you really put in the effort to look for what is the full side of the glass, don't assume that it's just empty, right? We do this exercise in my trainings where I have people go to bed at night asking themselves what was the best moment of the day. Just a simple question, what was the best moment of the day? And then you savor it for a minute or two. You don't even have to write about it. If you did that 30 nights in a row, you'd realize every day, no matter how difficult the day has the best moment, the worst days of our lives. You know, I lost a brother, you've lost a child. The worst days of our lives, they were best moments. Some days the best moments are profound and some days they're quite simple, like the sight of a bird. But every day, there is goodness every day. I, uh, I have to admit this. I stay sometimes in front of people and I say, look, I mean, it's been the most painful experience of my life to lose Ali but it's also been probably one of the best experiences of my life since. You know, the way my life turned, the way my purpose and meaning became clear, the way I, I don't know, I mean, I, I look at it and I train my brain, like you said. I look at the idea of, yes, he left, but he also came. That's the full side of the glass, right? Let's assume that not everyone has trained their brain to be in that place. What was the best moment of your day, by the way? Today? Mm -hmm. Right? Oh, or the day my brother died. Today, first. Today, your smile. When the camera oh, came man. out. Oh, man. Okay, okay. I'm blushing <laughs> a little bit here now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, to be in the presence of a warm gaze and a soft smile in the middle of COVID-19, I mean, that is, I don't know, that's just nourishment. It really is. And uh, thank you, by the way. I wish uh, our listeners would be able to see what I'm seeing, uh, which is, again, angelic, really. I mean, true calm, true peace. And to be honest, I'll be very open. Maria is a very attractive lady, but that's not what glows. What glows is that peacefulness. It's the idea of, I can go through life. I can go through life with calm and peace. I can find beauty. Because beauty is not always 
in shapes, is it? I mean, there is a lot of beauty in that. What is beauty to you, Maria? I think it's, it's some sort of weird combination of integrity, something that's like is what it is. It's in integrity and it's lovely in its goodness or it's leaning into goodness and it's stillness. There's a stillness in beauty and a kind of grace to it. I'm studying it, actually. I'm reading about beauty now because it strikes me that if we can find beauty globally as we're holding each other through this, that is going to benefit all of us. I think there is a lot of shift happening. Do you feel that this is... I mean, most of my friends have been going through the first couple of weeks of being grumpy, like we're trained in the modern world to be grumpy. And then, <laughs> and then there was a week of like being confused. It's like, do I really like this? Can I tell others that I'm enjoying being away from the madness of everyday life? And then I, I started week four and five, I started to get a lot of messages saying, look, it's been very uncomfortable to be with myself first, but then I like me. I'm finding things. I'm walking an hour a day here in the UK. They allow an hour a day. I'm connecting with friends and they're good and I'm healthy and I'm... There is so much joy that can come out of a crisis like this, but not everyone thinks like that. Do you use certain practices? What do you teach people when they are under such stress? I mean, resilience and managing stress is your work. Yeah, the very first step under stress is to create pockets or moments of respite. So mindfulness practice for many, meditation practice or prayer practice, yoga for some. But in respite, you know, we can find enough sort of freedom to choose our next best step. And right now, I think the next best step for most of us is figuring out what self-care looks like in order that we can show up to teach our little ones math or to partner equally well with our partner or to get work done or to create new work if we've lost our job, you know, to, to figure out how that's going to happen. And then on top of that, to feed whoever we can feed, literally and metaphorically. But none of those big questions can really move forward with any kind of wisdom or gracefulness if we're not first giving ourselves a place to rest. So positivity you know, those moments of quiet or calm or laughter or positivity or taking a walk. I think of them as recovery and they're mandatory right now. Yeah. And there is a lot of opportunity to do that. I was chatting to a few business colleagues the other day who were just talking about, ah, stressful times and so on and so forth. And how much time can we dedicate to work? And the truth is, if you're pretending to be working more than when you used to go to the office, that's good because your manager will think you're amazing. But the reality is <laughs> the reality is that most of us are working a bit less, right? I mean, there is so much time to find rest. There is so much time to find connection. I love Every Day Counts, your book. It's amazing, really. And I have to say some of your statements are quite eye-opening because they contradict what we normally talk about in the spirituality world, right? So one of my favorites is love is not a cure, but a powerful antidote to pain. Can you talk about that? I mean, everyone goes like, all you need is love is what the Beatles taught us. And, but you say it's not the cure. What does that mean? Because the very fact that we love is inherently painful because we love what's mortal. Oh, man. Watching 
that book that you're referencing is the story of my training year at a cancer hospital in Boston, where I worked with children who were facing cancers and other blood diseases. And I was on the bone marrow ward, which is often the ward of last resort. And loving does not cure pain. In fact, it inherently (laughs) brings you pain. And at the same time, it is the antidote to our suffering. One of the things I found myself saying to parents who were losing their children, the worst moment often wasn't when the child died. The worst moment often was when the physician said, there's nothing more we can do. And all of that expected hope for a possible miracle cure was taken away. That was the moment where I found myself saying over and over again, look, you get to love your child the rest of your life. Your child gets to be your child and you get to love your child the rest of your life. The form is going to change, but your love will be, even though it's bringing pain right now, will be the antidote that will carry you through day by day, little by little, little by little by little. You get to love the rest of your life. And I think you know this. You've spoken about how Ali was, is, will be a light, right? This is where time and grammatical tenses become irrelevant. Ali has been with you, was with you, will be with you, right? In my heart and in physics, believe it or not, which most people don't realize that, you know, if we really understand the relativity of time, we understand that there is no before and no after and there is no There's no moment where Ali ceased to exist. Ali was always there and is always here and will always be here. And so are you and so is everyone else. And because we as humans find it difficult to completely be convinced of things that are not physical, sometimes it's hard. But when you say changes form, what do you mean by that? When love changes form? And one of the ways I know I am loving and that my daughter and son experience love is I literally, I make food for them, right? I feed them and I do their laundry or I remind them to do their laundry or I, you know, I'm at the concrete and I can't do that for my brother. I can't do that for my father. I can't do that for the 17 year old I treated at Dana-Farber who essentially died alone. And I was one of the last people she saw, you know, I cannot change her dressing. I cannot sit with her as she writes out her list of people to say goodbye to. The physical form of love has shifted into a much even granular and yet at the same time grander way of loving. You know, I often will carry my brother with me into a lecture and I'll say, Johnny, dude, help me. These are not my people. I don't know why I'm here. I did a program with financial CEOs a couple of years ago, and this is not who I typically hang out with, Mo. And I wasn't convinced that they really wanted to learn about happiness, (laughs) but I was terrified. And I was like, dude, Johnny, now, now would be good. Show up (laughs) now. (laughs) Yeah. Remember that time when I helped you out? This is the time. Yeah, this is payback, right? I wrote that poem for you your senior year of high school because you were too (laughs) drunk to write a poem, and I wrote the poem payback. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. My turn. So there is that changing form. I love that concept of it. But then love itself remains the same and it lasts. And when we go through those transitions is really where the pain is most intense. But you say that it's a cure for the pain. I think anyone who's broke up with her boyfriend recently will say, no, 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 hold on. You know, my love is the reason for my pain. But you see that differently. 
it is the reason and it's also the antidote and not necessarily to love that same boy or girl again right they've broken up with you like okay take the message move on but to find a way into an open heart again to love again love yourself love the world love the chance you've given yourself to move forward you know love the fact that the bluebirds keep showing up even though covid-19 is happening Maybe a lot of people listening are not enjoying the experience of the peacefulness that we have in this conversation, but you have learned to find that peacefulness in the harshest places in life, working with cancer patients, with your own personal experiences. Why is life so harsh? Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I have no answer to that. You know, here's where I just rest in it is what it is. There's so little I have control over and the harshness of life, the injustice of life. I have very little control over. I do have control. We have control. And this is what I was talking about earlier about the ultimate choice that we have, which humanity has had as a choice ever since consciousness, which is the choice to show up as a better human being. And this is what it's all about. Yeah. I was talking to my partner the other day, my guy, and I was saying, you know what? I just I'm fascinated by when the first moment was that one of our Neanderthal or whoever ancestors wasn't just helping with a tool but actually looked up with the gaze of love and said I'm going to love this tribe or this clan or this like I would be fascinated to know when that sense of care and protection and kinship all came together Because when that happened was the moment when we began to have the choice, do I act like a jerk or do I act like a better person? <laughs> yeah. And I will tell you openly, I think that is the choice. This is the single choice that we have. It's probably the choice that will lead humanity to salvation or lead humanity to a very not nice place. When I was preparing to do some research work, some storytelling work during week one of COVID, I remembered a story I had heard, a true story. In Iam, England, about 35, I think, miles northeast of Manchester. In 1666, bubonic plague has taken over Europe. It's come through southern England. It's heading north. And this little town of Iam, about 340 folk, gather together with the rector. And under the guidance of their rector, they make a decision that they're going to close the borders of the town. You can go there now today and you'll see the border wall, big, huge stones they put around the boundaries of the town. And in the stones, they carved holes, they dropped in coins, and they put vinegar on the coins because they thought it would keep the coins free of the plague. And they had the earl of the county tell tradespeople, come up to the stones, take the money, leave goods and food that you normally would trade with the villagers of Iam because they've closed their walls. And they did so, Mo, because they made a decision collectively that they would cause no harm to a stranger. They would infect no stranger, and that anyone who became diseased with the plague would die in the arms of someone they knew and someone they loved. And so two-thirds of the village died over the next 14 months. But their choice became a model through northern England, and it actually began to help slow the progression of the plague. This was in 1666. We have been making choices for the beneficence of humanity. I think ever since that moment of awakening of love, whenever and however that happened. And that is, I think, our choice. It is. And I don't know how much clearer it can be than in a time like this. I think the reality is 
Of all of the positive changes that I have seen with COVID-19, one of the most positive changes is the evolution of our presence on social media. There is so much less complaining and so many more jokes and so many more kind videos. I mean, in reality, there is a ton of negativity everywhere when you look at media in general. But the number of jokes I get and the number of, you know, posts that are making fun of the idea that we're being locked down and dogs talking and people, you know, it's like, it's really, it's so much fun. And in an interesting way, it's a choice, such an interesting choice of people connecting rather than saying, and I think there is definitely that need for connection. There is, humanity is like, can I please reach out to another human being? And now you know that you need it that connection when in few weeks or months ago people were all around you and all you were doing was fighting and it's really eye-opening i think that is the choice really it's can i become a better person can i love and make a difference to others and mo in your world the worlds that you've come from in engineering or the google x world or physics tell me how this all makes sense from those perspectives i love it when there's an understanding that crosses intellectual domains. My favorite topic really is something I call the conservation of love and the conservation of giving, which are very similar to the law of the conservation of energy, where energy is never destroyed, it's never created from nothing and so on and so forth. You know, it's just transformed from one form to the other. And we can measure that because we have the technology, the tools, the scientific method enables us to measure things like energy, right? But the problem with the scientific method is that you can't measure anything like love. There is no instrument that measures love. There is no, no financial instrument that shows that when you give someone 10 pounds, 10 pounds come back to you from some other place or $10 or whatever, right? And the reality is that there are so many laws of physics that we have never really known about in the past that were discovered when we managed to discover the things that we were measuring and love and giving and compassion and empathy and all of those things that don't happen to be physical are not part of that, but those laws hold true still. One of my personal experiments, because I debate everything, is in the Islamic faith, there is a belief that when you give out to charity, you get back 10x what you gave out. And I ran an experiment once. I didn't mean for it to be an experiment, honestly. I was in London Heathrow Airport and uh, this wonderful lady at the checkout of the duty-free was really, she looked unhappy. And so I did something that's normally very unusual. I said, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I gave her a lot more than what the product I was buying for. And I said, can I ask to keep the rest for you, please? And she burst crying. And she said it was my daughter's birthday and I really needed the money to cheer her up and I didn't have the money and thank you so much. And she was literally crying. And the thing is, I got on the flight and I was switching off my phone and I receive a text message from someone I lent money to around seven years before, completely forgot about it. It was a tiny amount of money. And he basically texted me and said, hey, by the way, I remembered I owed you this money, which was exactly 10x what I gave to that wonderful lady. <laughs> and I swear to you, it's like, I don't know if I can prove it, but here is a measurement. Like some, somebody in science needs to go out and think about those things. Yeah. Oh, I love that. It's really weird when you think about it. This, we're talking about you today, Maria. So let's go back to you because one of my favorite quotes of all time 
is when you say they seemed to know intuitively what adults struggle to relearn, that playing relieves stresses, that it's okay to cry, and so on, right? Tell me about play, because play, as most people who know my work, is really dear to my heart. But yes, I agree, adults struggle so much to connect back to play. So that learning came from a bunch of six and seven and eight-year-olds I was working with at Dana-Farber. So they've been diagnosed with cancer, which means to them, bad things have to happen. They have to take medicines, they have to have a surgery, they lose a part of their body, we have these disgusting needle shots, you know, terrible things. And I would meet with them in this, our therapy room, which was filled with toys of every kind. And that you would say to the kids, well, you know, what do you want to do today? And I, I don't know, I, I don't know how many kids I treated that year, but I would say nine out of 10 of them would instinctively say, I just want to play. Like, let's just play. Yeah. And they just knew to build in sort of respite by letting themselves love what they love. I love the toys. I love the puppets. I love jumping. I love playing checkers or chess. They just let themselves love what they love. And that was play for them. And it was fascinating because I, as a recovering perfectionist, you know, I was just starting to waken up. (laughs) Yeah. I was just starting to waken up to the fact that if I kept trying to achieve and get the A grade and please everybody and not make any mistakes, I was going to be miserable and tormented. But when I let myself play with them, oh, right. Cancer becomes a part of the journey, not the whole journey. I love this. There's the cancer thing. And meanwhile, we're going to do Teletubbies. (laughs) And that's not a waste of anyone's time. It's actually, it doesn't change anything other than make things better, does it? Right. And then when we played... And I was then able to say to them, okay, you know, we have five minutes left and then we have to go to the clinic and the nurse, you know, is going to give you your shot and I'll be with you the whole time. Like their willingness to go do the shot was much better than if I had to try to talk them through it kind of thing. I learned so much about playfulness and respite and innocence and just loving what you love. Like a permission. I love jigsaw puzzles. I'm doing jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> like I just... I'm doing what I love. I dare you to play me in a video game. I think that's a better uh, use of our gaming abilities. (laughs) (laughs) I'm terrible. You've already won. Jigsaw puzzles are fine. So you go through that experience. You realize that children know that instinctively. How do adults start to realize that? We often have to relearn it. And sadly enough, we often relearn it when we've hit the point at which we're so miserable. Yeah. We have everything we need. And even sometimes more than enough, and we still are miserable. Yeah. And why does a child need a stick to be happy? Like to go out and play with a stick. And why do I need a Peloton and a treadmill and this and that? You know, like there's something wrong with the formula. I think one of the silver linings, by the way, of COVID-19 are the neighborhoods that are watching the little children in the neighborhood go out and play every day. Yeah. Like... It's Tuesday. We play on Tuesday. Oh, it's Wednesday. I play on Wednesday. Oh, it's Thursday. I play on Thursdays, it turns out. You know, like 
That's a choice. That's exactly how it should be. And by the way, none of the kids is going to fail their PhD because life is really not that demanding when you think about it. I, I am a huge, huge fan of play. As a matter of fact, I believe that play is the ultimate way to success, believe it or not. Of course, when I started to work at Google, I was that serious, grumpy businessman like, hey, everyone should put their heads down and da 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 But the reality is that it's probably our most productive state. It is when all of the stress goes away, when you're in flow. Of course, I'm not advocating that play becomes separated from the rest of life. So we just hide in a playground and just play all the time or sit in front of a video game and just waste our life. But the idea of incorporating an attitude of play. And honestly, the happiest people in the COVID-19 lockdown are the people that manage to find ways to enjoy it, to play, to have fun, to joke about it, to be safe and mindful and responsible, but at the same time to incorporate those abilities to have a wonderful experience that I will say, and I know some people will attack me, will never be repeated. Judging by my age and how long I lived before this happened, it's unlikely that something like this that will stop me from traveling keep me at home, give me time to write and meet wonderful people like you, you know, it's going to happen again. I mean, if it does, I'll be happy to take another break, to be honest, but uh, most people are not looking at it this way. Your work is all about, it basically goes down to the idea of make each day special, even if it's a bad day. Yes, I would say it, shape the day, like lead yourself into your life by shaping the day. I'm going to be pushy here. So Good. imagine if you're stuck in a small bedroom with a person that you were thinking of breaking up with, but COVID-19 happened and you didn't manage to, and you just lost your job and, and you're worried about your old parents catching it. How can you shape that day? To create a moment of stillness quiet reflection time, a walk, just some moment of stillness in which you can ask yourself three questions. What is going to nourish me today, just today? Or what is going to strengthen me today, just today? Or what is going to inspire me? Serenity, strength, and inspiration, those are the keystones to resilience. And they're actually the keys to transforming a difficult moment into sort of that growth of becoming more your better self. And whenever you ask those three questions, there will always be an answer. And I think that's the beauty of it. There will always be. And interestingly enough, often the answers are quite simple. You know, what nourishes me is a cup of tea. Okay, make yourself a cup of tea and be present to the tea. What strengthens me? What strengthens me is watching John Krasinski's Some Good News blog so I can laugh a little and feel energy and say, good, go watch John Krasinski be silly. Yes, right? What inspires me? Remembering that my ancestor, my grandmother, this is true, so this is me, my grandmother came over from Sicily at the age of 16 or 17, never went back again, incredibly poor, raised seven children, sewing gloves, piecemeal work. She went through the Depression, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam. If she can freaking do that, I can figure out how to work from my bedroom. Oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, she figured that out. I can hang in here and figure this out. I swear, this needs to be all over the news. If she had figured this out, I can figure out how to work from my bedroom. Seriously, <laughs> it's really not that complicated. So for me, perspective is inspiring. 
So everybody gets to ask themselves, what inspires me? What strengthens me? What nourishes me? You see, in a time like this, I think the mistake we often make, people in the business world I've been talking to are like, you know, is my work going to be relevant six months from now? Am I, is the career trajectory? And I keep saying, you know, your best chance of having that future is by shaping the day you've got right now. Like, wow, how can you center yourself? Because that's the only guarantee. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing you can affect, yeah? Who we are in the day. I mean, Viktor Frankl taught us oh, this. Yeah. Gandhi taught us, right? This is not new news, people. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, shaping tomorrow is not going to happen today. So shaping tomorrow is going to happen tomorrow when it's today. So it's really as simple as that. You're a true angel and you are such oh. an inspiration and you have so much insight, so much peace. I really can't thank you enough, Maria. This has been a wonderful conversation I'm truly looking forward to the time when we're not in lockdown again, just so that we can be in the same place again. But this has been wonderful. I am so grateful. So for all of you listening, if you want to know more about Maria's work, search for Maria Sirois, that's S-I-R-O-I-S, on YouTube, on Facebook, on all social media. I don't think you will regret one minute of listening to her wisdom. Maria, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy. <laughs>